Hey everyone, I'm Kimberly Adams. Welcome back to Make Me Smart, where we make today make sense. Kai is out today, but joining me is the wonderful Rima Kreis, host of the Marketplace podcast. This is Uncomfortable. Hi, everyone. It's good to be back. Thanks for joining us on this Wednesday. It is February 14th. Happy Valentine's Day to those celebrating. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it's a contentious thing whether or not you celebrate that or not. I love Valentine's Day. I like all things love. I get it's If you love love. Yeah, I think it's nice. It's an excuse. You know, on the way in here, one of my colleagues was like, I'm going to take this moment to just say that I appreciate you on Valentine's Day. And it's like, you know what? We should do that every day. Yeah, just I love expressions that. of love and care and acknowledgement. I'm here for it. Yeah, I love yeah. you and care about you, Rima. You're wonderful. Oh, Kimberly, I love you and I care about you. <laughs> Thanks. All right. I'm so sweet. <laughs> yes. All right. So we're going to do some news and we're going to get uh, some smiles, which by the end of this conversation, we're really mm-hmm. going to need because Rima... The last time we were on together, we had a really heavy conversation. It was heavy. Um, And it's going to be heavy again today. Um, Mm -hmm. I was on back in October when everything first happened in Gaza with Israel. So that was back when, uh, I think at that point, Israel's military campaign in Gaza had just started in response Mm -hmm. to the attack from Hamas that killed 1,200 people. And yeah, we were just processing... Um, you know, I shared with listeners that my family's from Gaza and, um, I should also say just really appreciated all of the messages I got afterwards. Um, your listeners are the best Mm. and, um, yeah, so it's been, wow, four months and, um, I want to talk about, you know, what's happening right now and also link it to the new season of This Is Uncomfortable, which came out a couple of weeks ago. And the first two episodes are about Gaza. Um, so before I talk about that more, though, I figured I would just take a step back and again, just chat about the news for a minute. So Israel's attacks have killed more than 28,000 Palestinians, according to Gaza Health Ministry. About 40 percent of them are reported to be children. Uh, and you know, we know, I know a lot of our listeners know all of this, but just to, to run through it, you know, Israel's complete siege on Gaza has meant very limited electricity, shortages of food and water. Um, and, you know, Gaza, as Palestinians knew it before last October, is pretty much gone. Every university has been bombed, hundreds of schools. There are no fully functional hospitals left in Gaza. Um, more than, I believe, 70% of the homes are destroyed. So, again, just it's, uh, yeah, feels like sometimes there aren't words to describe it, but it's been a personally just really challenging time. Um, and uh, most of our relatives are currently there, including my grandparents, most of my aunts, uncles, uh, dozens of cousins. And so, you know, the first couple of months, I was just, I mean, we talked a bit about this, Kimberly. I was just trying my best yeah. to like process this as a human. Uh, and to be present with my family, uh, especially because, like most people well, and from as a Gaza, journalist. and as a journalist, it was just a lot, and it's yeah. been a lot in general. Um, but yeah, and like you know, most people from Gaza, we've lost a lot of family members, and so it just it's been a relentless string of tragedies. And so um, I've been spending a lot of time with my family in North Carolina, and on one of my recent trips, I decided to 
sit down with my dad and interview him about his life in Gaza and how he's processing this moment. Um, and to be honest, I, I wasn't sure initially if I was even going to publish it. It was just a personally important thing for me to do. But I ended up working with my team and uh, with our producer, Alice Wilder, to turn that conversation into an episode. And, uh, you know, my dad and I, we ended up talking about a lot of things that day. Um, but I focused mostly on his relationship to this one hospital in Gaza. It's called Al Ahli Hospital. And um, you might remember, Kimberly, it was the first mm -hmm. hospital during the war to make a lot of headlines because there was a huge explosion that led to hundreds of people getting killed and injured. Um, and it's the hospital where my dad worked for 10 years as a nurse. Um, and so if you hear this story, you'll discover that it's also the reason why we ended up in the U.S. The hospital, which is this Christian hospital, had um, it had a sister hospital based in North Carolina, which is where they sent my dad to work. But with everything that's unfolded, I just had all these new questions for my dad. And I wanted to not just capture his immigration, his economic story, but also in this piece, we reflect on everything, you know, like uh, we reflect on the family members we've lost and how we've been coping. Um, it's really heavy and it's the most intimate thing and, I've shared. Yeah. And I have to say what I was really struck by, because you'd shared that you'd lost some family, including, you know, one of your cousins, the yeah. entire family at once. But I was really struck by a moment in that episode where you and your family kind of tabulated just how many mm -hmm. people in the extended family mm -hmm. had been killed so far. And I was shocked by that number. Yeah, really honestly, um, I, I was shocked when we tallied it as well because... Um, yeah, we have been getting a lot of reports from our family of people who've mm -hmm. been killed, but to see that number it was 156. It's yeah, it, it's it doesn't feel real. Um, and yeah. a lot of them are extended family that, and I talk about this in the piece of just never having the opportunity to even know so many of them right um is its own kind of grief and um and then to your point yeah we talk about my cousin who um that yeah my cousin and uh, her family her husband was an OBGYN and so he stayed behind to take care of his patients and Israel's uh struck the hospital and they lived in an apartment above this small hospital so that um yeah, it's it's hard for me to even talk about it right now. Um, but yeah, it's a very yeah, it's a very special episode, and I'm just grateful for my dad for being so open and vulnerable with me. Um, it was a really meaningful way for us to connect and to channel a lot of our grief while also, you know, sharing our small human connection to this massive global story that can I think sometimes feel faceless or distant um and i really so that was the first appreciate episode, the fact yeah. that you that you did that because i know you wrestled with that quite a bit and i did that was incredibly powerful to hear and i, I know it must have been hard so thank you for sharing yeah. that i appreciate you saying that kimberly it was and yeah we had conversations about this too and i, I appreciate you supporting me and making this thing because it was not wasn't easy um and so 
yeah, that was the first episode. And then we did a second episode uh, that was produced by Hannah Harris Green. And for that, we wanted to do a story about what it's like to be in Gaza right now. And so we found this one woman, Hannah, who's in her early 30s. She works for a humanitarian organization. And we talked with her about her difficult upbringing in Gaza and how, despite that, she worked hard. She achieved financial freedom. She created a life she was proud of. And now everything in her in her orbit is unrecognizable, uncertain. Um, and so we touched on a lot in that episode. But the relevant news item is that she, like most people, well, it's all relevant, but she, like what's happening right now, she, like most people in Gaza, um, fled her home. She's relocated several times. And now she's in Rafah, which is the southernmost major city in Gaza. It's right by Egypt's border. It's been referred to as uh, the last refuge for civilians. It's where most people have fled to following Israel's instructions. Um, it's where our remaining family members currently are sheltering. And so um, now the latest news is that Israel <clears throat> Israel authorities say they plan to expand their offensive there and continue their goal to, you know, continue their what they're saying their goal is to eradicating Hamas. Um, and so but, but what's happened really is that Gazans have been pushed more and more south for the last several months to avoid Israel's bombardment. And so, you know, even though Rafah is the last so-called sanctuary, um, it's not safe and it hasn't been safe for a while. You know, we saw airstrikes in the last week, including one the other day. And so Hen and I talked about how, you know, everyone there is just is terrified. They don't know where to go. Egypt isn't allowing people in. Um, and there have been some reports, we talked about this in the episode, of like of Palestinians coordinating with brokers in Egypt to leave Gaza. But Hannah told me it can cost up to $10,000 just for one person. So, you know, if that she and her husband left. To me. Yeah, it's, it is. And and that's like if you're even able to do it, right? Like there's right. still so much coordination and logistics. Um, and so if they were to do that, it would, you know, wipe out their savings. And most people in Gaza can't afford to do something like that. So, and there's also this larger fear of like, you know, if they leave would they be able to return? Um, and I think a lot of people, yeah, link it to what happened during the creation of Israel when there was a mass exodus and, and people weren't able to return to their homes. So, you know, it feels like an impossible situation. And recently there's been a lot of intense international pressure, um, including from Biden and uh, from Washington to prevent this ground invasion Uh Biden, as I'm sure you saw, Kimberly, he's been more direct lately, saying that, you know, Israel's operation is over the top. But Israel hasn't presented any plans for evacuation or to stop his campaign. So that's where things stand right now. Um, and yeah, we'll see what happens. Um, How's your dad been doing and your family doing since the episode dropped and seeing all the response to it? You know, that's been one of the best parts of making this. Um, my dad is just, I feel like it was a good release um, and a very helpful release mm. for him. Um, and, you know, he immediately shared it with his friends from Gaza and with our family members. Uh, and I think, you know, he's been overwhelmed with the support and um, just how much it's resonated with people. So I feel like it's, yeah, it's been this really special way for us to connect and to, like I said earlier, just channel a lot of um, these difficult feelings. 
And so, uh, yeah, I've just, that's, it's been really special. Um, that's good to hear. I mean, it's yeah. such a awful time. It's nice that, um, yeah, there at least can be some kindness and, and empathy, uh, shared in, in these moments. Um, yeah, yeah you were it's talking helpful. about Biden's reaction and it's been interesting to watch the shifting public perception um, mm. when Hamas first launched the attack. I remember talking to Kai on the show mm-hmm. and highlighting polling that younger generations were not as pro-Israel um, as older generations in the United States and that that mm-hmm. was going to be a problem uh, for Biden. And that has really um shown up and it's getting more and more intense. I'm hearing from more and more people in my life and even from strangers who are avowed Democrats who are telling me that they feel deeply uncomfortable to the point where they don't know if they will vote in November Mm -hmm. because they don't feel like they can in good conscience support Biden again in this given his lack of intervention as they see it in this crisis. And the administration is clearly feeling the pressure. I mean, we're seeing um, there was a memo that the administration put out uh, about sort of laying out the White House standards on foreign aid. And so this this memo, and I'll link, we'll have an article about it in the show notes. So this was a memo listing out the foreign aid requirements. And the White House is denying that it changes anything. But mm-hmm. people, especially Democrats in Congress, who've been pushing for a ceasefire and pushing for more conditional aid to Israel say that it actually is a big deal because I'm going to read here from The Independent. The memo outlines existing laws stating that countries receiving U.S. aid must follow humanitarian guidelines, such as providing credible and reliable written assurances that they are complying with international law and humanitarian standards. And a lot of people are reading this as being about Israel without actually saying Israel. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, Um, The White House is also strongly advocating for this piece of legislation that just passed in the Senate. It's got a tough road in the House, but it's the foreign aid bill. It's a $95 Mm -hmm. billion foreign aid package that includes $14 billion for Israel, uh, including for more weapons. But it also includes $10 billion billion for humanitarian aid uh, for civilians in co- in various conflict zones, including the Palestinians in Gaza. And we'll have an article on that. Um, but there is, you know, growing condemnation, not just here in the United States, but, but globally. I saw this story mm-hmm. where um, a court in the Netherlands on Monday told the Dutch government it had to stop exporting F-35 fighter jet parts to Israel, say, and, and this is from CNN, citing a clear mm-hmm. risk that Israel's fleet was being used to commit serious violations of international law. And the, uh, the European Union's foreign policy chief, Joseph Borrell, uh, on Monday suggested that the U.S. cut arms supplies to Israel amid mounting concerns about the civilian toll of the war. His quote was kind of... Um, 
cutting. If you believe mm-hmm. the death toll is too high, maybe you can do something to make it lower, Borrell told mm-hmm. reporters in Brussels. The European Union is not providing arms to Israel. Others do. And the the arms sales um, are, I think, you know, the, the White House has said that they don't want to stop sending arms to Israel because they say that those arms sales give Israel leverage. But I was fascinated by the $14 billion number, and it made me want to go and look at how much aid Israel usually gets from the United okay. States. And, and uh, the Council of Foreign Relations has a really good um, piece. It's the U.S. aid to Israel in four charts. And the aid is, uh, I'll just read this here. Israel yeah. has been the largest cumulative recipient of U.S. foreign aid since its founding, receiving about $300 billion adjusted for inflation in total economic and military assistance. The United States has also provided large foreign aid packages to other Middle Eastern countries, particularly Egypt and, and Iraq, but Israel stands apart, and, mm-hmm. and there's a chart. But usually it's about $4 billion a year um, because the United States has provisionally agreed via memorandum of understanding to provide yeah. Israel with nearly $4 billion a year through 2028, um, although the supplemental has fourteen more than $14 billion in it. Mm. So it's a lot it's of a lot money. More. Yeah. It's a lot of and money. From what I understand, I read that article, uh, most of that aid goes to support Israel's military um, and specifically to purchasing U.S. military equipment and services. Um, and s- there was another point that article made that I found interesting, which is that, you know, there are a lot of arguments for why we should continue to send aid. I think people, uh, you know, say that it cultivates sort of this ongoing partnership that's important and that it would threaten, you know, their arguments that it would threaten the security. And then other people argue that um, withholding it isn't necessarily a punishment, but rather an acknowledgement that the U.S. has achieved its goal of providing assistance and that, you know, initially when the assistance began, the financial picture looked a lot different. Um, mm. And today, and Israel, Israel is... was actively at war with the people, with the countries around it. And so its defense was a very different picture. Yeah. And so this article was making the point that Israel is, you know, it's a very wealthy country. It's the 14th richest per capita. And so and it has one of the most advanced militaries in the world. So it yeah, it's just a different context today. Um, mm. But yeah, we should definitely share that article with folks. Uh, lots of interesting stats in there. All of it's going to be in the show notes, but we have, uh, now that we've done that, we should probably find some kind of way to smile. How do, oh man. Okay, yeah, let's shift. <laughs> feels, feels like a difficult task, but let's do that. Hard pivot. That's why we have music for it. Mm-hmm. You want to <laughs> okay. go first? Well, I will say, though, what I really appreciate about your episode with Hannah is all mm. the laughter that you were able Aww. to get in there. Yeah. Um, and how she emphasized that, you know, there there are moments of joy that she has and, and that everyone has. Yeah. And I think that's important to remember. I think that's important, too. I really appreciated that point that she made, how she doesn't want to be defined by her struggles. Um, and, yeah, that there's still ways in which you can access, like, small moments of joy or comfort. Um, 
But yeah, I, I was also surprised if you listen back to the episode, just how much levity there is in there, um, despite how grim <laughs> everything is. So speaking of right. moments of joy, I Let's had this super joyful uh, piece that I came across in the Washington Post about friendship. And it says, mm-hmm. how to stay friends for 50 years, ask the women of Sugar Hill. Since the early 1970s, a group of 16 women have met up every December to celebrate their friendship. And basically these women all went to the University of Maryland at College Park at the same time. And it was, you know, when these are black women and this is when black students only made up 4% of the student body. And so Mm. they really connected with each other and built this support network. And then they made a point to keep it going. And what I found really interesting about this article is the sort of textbook for how you invest in friendships to keep them going in terms of the group chats and the planning activities Mm -hmm. and how they support each other, video calls, uh, video chats, phone calls, and fitness challenges that they do together. (laughs) And it was just really, yeah, it's really lovely. And, you know, these women have really taken care of each other. And I think that's absolutely beautiful. And they seem to have such a good time together. They've traveled to all these different countries Mm and, I mean, maintaining I'm adult smiling. friendships is hard. Hey, good. It's I'm hard. glad you're smiling. I'm smiling so much right now. Yeah, just at the thought of that. Because <laughs> the pictures are great. <laughs> I mean, it's hard to maintain adult friendships, but can you imagine like a group of 16 and right. not having like infighting and subgroups exactly. and, and like side chats and things like that, which maybe right. there are. But anyway... It's super fun. That is Um, that is my goal in life. Like I'm part of a group chat of uh, ten women, and we call each we call ourselves sisters abroad. And yeah, and I also sometimes marvel at the fact that I mean, yeah, there's drama that might happen every now and then, but we're still consistently all in touch. We're all friends, and my dream is that when we're eighty, we're still hanging out, still renting Airbnbs, and you know, staying up too late talking, and that would be amazing. Um, I love it. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Um, Another article in the post that made me smile, and then I want to hear yours, um, Mm -hmm. was a Valentine's Day themed one about uh, (laughs) whether or not you can tell a breakup text as it is, whether it's from AI or a real human. And there was a quiz where they Mm -hmm. basically... some people sent in their own breakup text chats and then they generated some with chat GPT and or some some other AI who knows. Yeah. Um, no, it was written by chat GPT, GPT four specifically. And there's a quiz to see if you can spot the difference between whether the convos are humans or robots. I did terribly on this quiz. But we'll have a link to that in Wait, the show notes. <laughs> Kimberly, we have to role play at least one of these conversations. Can we please oh, do the first one? Yes. Yes. Okay. Let's do it. Okay. Here we go. Um, you go first. So you're one person and I'm the other. Okay. Been thinking about our future. I really want to travel the world. I'm more of a settle down and build a home type. Seems like we want different things. Looks like it. Maybe we're not right for each other. Sad to say, but I agree. Goodbye, Jamie. <laughs> that is a robot. You're going to tell me that's a you human? Uh, uh, well, let's yeah, see. Let me... I clicked robot. <laughs> You're right. Uh, AI wrote yay. this. 
Um, that That's was fun. one that I got right too. But so they get they get harder than that. Okay. They, they definitely okay. do. I only got do two out of the nine correct. <laughs> okay, oh, wow. now what's your smile? All right, my smile um, just came across this in Business Insider. I thought it was cute. It's uh, about this woman who goes to strangers' weddings for fun. So it's like a real life wedding crasher. Um, she, well, I guess she's not crashing. But with she gets permission. invited with permission. Yeah, she gets invited through these Facebook groups where brides are like, "Hey, we have some empty seats. Uh, like, let me know if you want a spot." And so uh, she'll go to these weddings. She'll see, you know, her name on the table chart, and um, she'll dance. She'll tear up at the speeches, and she still apparently gives them a gift. Um, and by the end of the night, she's made friends and eh, fun thought it was interesting and apparently there's also there's another tidbit in this article where there's they mentioned there's this facebook group called uh sisterhood of the traveling wedding guest bridesmaid or surrogate <laughs> mom so it's like for people who want who don't have people in their lives who can help them go dress shopping or do wedding errands um so i thought that was kind of sweet and uh yeah yeah so we'll share that that cute little story I feel like we have given a good dose of smiles to end this show. Um, so, so let's end on our up note. Uh, so that is <laughs> yeah. it for us today. We are going to be back tomorrow. Until then, you can send your thoughts, questions, and comments to make me smart at marketplace.org. You can also leave us a voicemail at 508 You Be Smart. No, oh, I think that's you, Kimberly, right? Yep. Make Me Smart okay. is produced by Courtney Bergseeker. Ellen Rolfus writes our newsletter. Today's program was engineered by Jake Cherry, and Talia Manchaka is our intern. Ben Talladay and Daniel Ramirez composed our theme music. Our senior producer is Marissa Cabrera. Bridget Bodner is the director of podcasts. Francesca Levy is the executive director of digital. And that is the show. That is the show.